God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Now, throughout this Easter season, we've been getting a double dose of John, if you will, in the epistle from 1 John and in the gospel reading. Today is no exception, and I think it's the clearest possible definition of just what God is. God is love, period, full stop. God is love. You see, we want God to be so many things. We want a vengeful God to repair injustice and right wrongs, kind of like God as a superhero. We want God to be merciful, especially to victims of hurricanes, wildfires, and other natural disasters. We want a God of protection, a God of complete moral clarity so we can reassure ourselves when we judge others. For some, we want a God of prosperity to line our pockets and get us that Mercedes-Benz. You see, John here supersedes all that. He simply says God is love. Specifically, agape, which is the Greek word for a self-sacrificing love that sent his son for us. That is the heart of the truth of God. And that love is a model for us to live by. Self-sacrificing love, agape, love that doesn't expect anything in return. And as we love, we grow, we mature. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. I don't know about you, but abide for me is a strange word, which makes that reading from 1 John that's already complicated even that much more challenging. So I went to a translation called The Message, which uses more familiar language. That line is translated this way, God is love. When we take up a permanent residence of a life in love, we live in God and God lives in us. I kind of like that. We take up permanent residence. We make a home out of love. And as we grow in that home, that residence of love, we mature into it. So we have no fear, not now or not on judgment day either, because again, this is from the message. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. There is no room in love for fear. There's no room in love for fear. It sounds so wonderfully simple that it's a wonder that we make this whole salvation thing seem so complex when it's just about love. And that's it. But 1 John is a test too because it calls us to love extravagantly. Not just love those who love us. That's all too easy. But to love those who are unworthy or unresponsive. Love those who are unloving or angry or even hateful. Love those who refuse to wear a mask. Love those who insist on wearing a mask. 1 John is a test because there is no love of God without love of neighbor, of all neighbors. And that's where it gets complicated. On Wednesday, I preached about the filmmaker Tyler Perry's remarkable acceptance speech at last Sunday's Oscar telecast. Easily the high point of the evening, Perry called for us to, quote, refuse to hate. Don't hate anybody. And he went on, I refuse to hate somebody because they're Mexican or because they are black or white or LGBTQ. I refuse to hate someone because they're a police officer. I refuse to hate someone because they're Asian. And that strikes me as a, as a visceral way to move us toward, towards the command to love everyone. It's a starting place. And amidst these divided times, it's a place to begin the movement toward universal love, toward agape. 
Now, God's love, and in this form, God as Holy Spirit, moves throughout the book of Acts, and nowhere more than in today's familiar reading featuring Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is sent to a wilderness road, literally the middle of nowhere, and encounters the confused eunuch, trying to understand the book of Isaiah. Now, the eunuch represents all that makes up the other. His origin, Ethiopia, is the outer limits of the known world, his blackness, even his sexuality. As a eunuch, he is neither fully male nor female. The Philip and eunuch story is often generalized as a call to evangelism, to mission in the world, especially outside our comfort zones. But to my favorite Acts scholar, Willie James Jennings, it has a different take. He suggests that God has come for the eunuch precisely because of his difference. God seeks to place the eunuch at the center of his work in the world, not relegated to the margins like the eunuch normally would be. God seeks to place him at the center, bonded together with the rest of us in strong cords that capture our difference. And Jennings asks, can one who has lived at the margin of community because of their identity live free in Christ? And the answer is a resounding yes, and is proof that social forces will not constrict that freedom. And the story of Philip and the eunuch force us to ask an existential question about ourselves. What does it mean to embrace those different from us for the sake of the gospel? In Philip, Spirit is driving him to a place where he normally would not go, literally the middle of nowhere. And Spirit is also driving Philip to do things he would not normally do. You see, in, in Mosaic law, which had endured for centuries, engaging with a eunuch, even a God-fearing one, was strictly forbidden. Their status outside traditional gender definitions made them unclean or impure. And any relationship with the current discussion around gender identity is purely coincidental. Or is it? Without asking permission, Philip bridges that gap, that difference, and engages with the eunuch. Philip teaches the eunuch, in the words of 1 John, to abide in love, abide in God, and let God abide in him. Love takes residence, makes its home in the eunuch precisely because of his difference, a difference that God yearns for and celebrates and calls for us as church to join him in doing so. Philip even baptizes the eunuch. Now, this is a truly revolutionary act. The eunuch asks, what is to prevent me from being baptized? He's literally from the wrong nation, has the wrong life, and is the wrong sexuality. There's plenty to prevent him from being baptized, but Philip is moved by the Spirit and baptizes him. And this most holy of sacramental events doesn't wash away the eunuch's otherness, the eunuch's difference it's holy, in its holy water, but joins that otherness to the body of Christ. The church has typically had two ways of addressing difference, forced assimilation or segregated tolerance. It's either you must change, you must change to fit our norms, or we're happy to have you, just not at our service, not at our table. Philip shows us a third way, what it means to embrace difference. Now, I'd like to think here at St. Peter's, we do a pretty good job of embracing some types of difference. But I wonder, what are our learning edges? Where should we be pushing ourselves to embrace those who are different? Or put another way, who are the people nearest me that the Spirit is pressing me to get to know and come to appreciate, come to love? 
not just difference of race or sex, but of worldview, of politics, of nationality. How many other ways? The call to be love, so nicely articulated in 1 John, knows no limits. It is extravagant and revolutionary because God is love, and that's the defining model of living. We take up residence in love. We make our home there. And as we mature more and more into love, our fears wash away. Our fears of difference, fears of losing control, fears of losing power, they all wash away. Now, earlier we heard our singers remind us in the opening processional about the rewards promised in this love. With the healing of division, with the ceaseless voice of prayer, with the power of love of witness, power of love and witness, with the peace beyond compare, come, Holy Spirit, come. This morning, the radical call to be love through God's love, through Holy Spirit, brings us together to embrace difference, to overcome division, and offer us the peace beyond compare. Thanks be to God. Amen.